Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Rural University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And today we have another one of our hematology consult episodes as part of our ongoing hematology consult series. And this time we're focusing on von Willebrand's disease. This will be a multi-part little series that we have going on because it's a, it's a pretty big topic. I'm excited to get into it. You know, I think Dan, the man here, he wrote this episode, he championed it. He is an amazing classical hematologist. So excited to get into this and learn something. Yeah, I figure I have to do something for this podcast every now and then. But yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. It's for sure like the second most confusing thing for me in benign hematology after the thalassemias, which are also just, there's just far too many of them. So yeah, let's do it. That sounds good. All right, guys, let's roll that show. All right, Jill. So we are getting to almost that halfway point of summer, which is scary to think that we're almost there. And I want to know, I feel like it, rosé season is in full swing. Am I, am I mistaken in that? You're right. Rosé season is absolutely in full swing. Dan, I want to get your thoughts on rosé, but first I just want to tell everybody, Trader Joe's rosé, very good. Have no idea what the brand is, what ty- different types of rosé actually mean, but it was very good. Trader Joe's rosé, don't know which type it is. It's in a glass bottle. That's what I know. Yeah, I'm I'm super happy this is here. I think people should drink more of this drink. It's not it's not pink Zinfandel anymore or red, you know. It's it's not just sweet stuff. There's some really excellent wines out there. Look at Southern France if you want to see some really classic examples. That sort of salmon pink rosé they get out of Provence. Got a bottle of Bandol open in the open in the fridge right now that has been drinking marvelously. So yes, get out there buy those rosés. We'll be linking that to our show notes, everybody. So everybody will know what Dan just said, because I have no idea, but it will be linked in our show notes. We will not get any kickback from it. So if you just want some good wine, check it out. I was going to say, I've never heard of any of those words and I can't speak French or have that put on that accent. So I agree. We'll just, we'll just write it out and let people kind of figure it out for themselves. You know, with with that in mind, though, guys, maybe we we talk about something a little bit more familiar with with our crowd, unless we have you know other wine connoisseurs in our audience. Von Willebrand's disease, as a fellow, you know, every time we get one of these patients in the hospital, or I have one of these patients in in a subspecialty clinic, I think I lose a couple of years off my life because I can't keep any of these straight and. Hopefully I'm not the only one that shares that that mindset so but but I'm hopefully I'm I'm excited for us to to clarify this disease and and help me and also our listeners figure this all out. Yeah, von Willebrand's disease doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me and we're going to learn a lot together. So let me kick us off with the case. We have a 45-year-old female with hypertension type 2 diabetes, and reported history of von Willebrand disease diagnosed during her workup for heavy menstrual bleeding. She's supposed to have a spinal fusion procedure, and her neurosurgeon wanted her to see hematology for recommendations given the severe consequences of bleeding during this type of surgery. Reviewing her available labs, she has a normal platelet count, normal APTT, and normal PT. She doesn't know what specific testing was done 
other than telling you my OBGYN just told me that I have von Willebrand's disease, please do something. So Dan, can you walk us through how we first think about approaching a patient like this? And this is something that we commonly do see in clinic and in the inpatient setting. Yeah, I see this all the time. People, for whatever reason, often feel that the last minute is the perfect time to talk about their bleeding disorder before surgery. So I often get these as fairly urgent referrals. I mean, like, oh, they have surgery next week. Can you figure out whether or not they're, they're going to have an issue with bleeding? One of the first things I like to do when I encounter a patient with a potential bleeding disorder uh, in any setting is to go through their bleeding history. And it can be a difficult thing to do in a systematic way. So I do like to use a tool, the bleeding assessment tool. This is something that the ISTH came up with. That's the uh, it's International Society for Thrombosis Hemostasis. And we'll have a link to this in the show notes, but briefly, it takes you through a series of bleeding symptoms with zero through five points assigned based on how severe each symptom is. An overall score of four or greater in men or six or greater in women is suggestive of a bleeding disorder. And to be clear, you know, I, I don't think of this as the be all and end all of patients bleeding disorder. You know, I don't say, okay, well, there are three, so obviously you don't have a bleeding disorder. It's just a, it's a really nice sort of systematic way to go through history uh, with the patient. And it's just in, in the end, it's just another piece of data that you're collecting. The other thing is bleeding symptoms can be pretty subjective. So it is nice to have this framework where you can say, okay, well, how many nosebleeds do you have a year? Have you ever had to have cautery for those nosebleeds? Have you ever required transfusions? You know, it, it just adds a little bit more structure overall. Yeah, and it's really important that we don't necessarily lean on those scores too heavily, like Dan said, which is very important. And we want our listeners to remember that when we think about something like von Willebrand's disease or platelet-type bleeding disorders, think more of these mucosal-type bleeding, less of the ortho-bleeding that we talked about in hemophilia. So that's an important distinction that we generally think of for these patients. So we went through the bleeding assessment tool with this patient and find she has a score of three for frequent nosebleeds from her right nostril and having to take time off work for her heavy menstrual periods. And this can be time off work or school, depending on the age of the patient. Notably, the patient had a hip replacement six months ago without any bleeding issues and did not have postpartum hemorrhage with any of her three deliveries. Her sister, who's 47, has a reported history of easy bruising. You discuss that you'll be sending off testing related to our von Willebrand factor, but that your history is reassuring against any bleeding disorder. Before we get into more details about the testing for von Willebrand's disease, can we go over the basics of what von Willebrand factor is and how it works? Yeah, absolutely, Vivek. I, I, and I think understanding all of this, these facts really does help kind of better help me at least understand the pathophys when it comes to diagnosis. So guys, remember that von Willebrand's is a glycoprotein multimer that has several important roles in, in hemostasis. And there's some belief that they may even, it may even have a role in angiogenesis. And it's present in a variety of molecular weights, but that larger molecular weight multimer is the one that's most effective at starting the clotting process. When these multimers are in circulation, they're sort of folded up and, you know, in areas of high turbulence. So for instance, um, at a site of endothelial injury, there's turbulent flow and that turbulent flow helps to uncurl that, that multimer um, and expose itself. 
These ultra-large multimers are also cleaved and made progressively less active by that protein atom TS13. Remember that we had talked about that previously um, in our TTP episode. But atom TS13 recalls a protease that acts at the von Willebrand's factor A2 domain, which is only exposed when the multimer can be partially unfolded. Von Willebrand's factor also acts as a chaperone for factor VIII, um, and therefore extending the half-life of factor VIII when it's in circulation. And believe it or not, von Willebrand's also interacts with several other critical components, which is why it's so important in that hemostasis cascade. So number one, it's going to bind to collagen at the site of vascular injury. It's also going to bind to platelets, and platelets actually have a, quote, von Willebrand's factor receptor, which is that GP1B receptor um, that we may recall uh, learning about. Um, so again, it's going to bind collagen, it's going to bind platelets, and also it seems to have a role in helping to slow down platelets and even um, a role in helping platelets sort of interact with each other. So as you can see, really, really important for establishing that primary hemostasis and helping to address a site of endothelial damage. That, that was a really good summary. And I think from when I was a resident, I had no idea what von Willenbrand did. When I was a fellow, I probably still had no idea what it did until maybe third year fellowship or something when I had to give a presentation on it, which is which is bad. But this is why we're doing this podcast is for, for people to learn this stuff because it is really important. The really key thing to know is when somebody is under stress, their clotting factors will all go up. And this is including the von Willebrand factor. So elevated von Willebrand factor is very common under stress. This is very normal. And the way I like to think about this, and back in the caveman era, if a woman was pregnant and she was delivering, you would want her to be able to achieve hemostasis. So what, what would her body do? It would physiologically upregulate things like factor eight and von Willebrand factor. This doesn't mean you're hypercoagulable per se. It's a physiologic response. If you're a caveman, got your arm ripped off by the saber-toothed tiger, you got to live somehow. So your body naturally will want to form these clots when it's under stress. Makes sense with Virchow's triad as well. Dan, so now we have this patient. We've gone through what von Willebrand factor does. She has this bat of three. She has this, you know, reassuring bat, but still we're, we need to send some tests. What are you going to send for a patient with suspected von Willebrand disease? Sure. So we're really lucky here at Rural University. We have a, a COAG lab where we can send off a von Willebrand's panel. The COAG lab will interpret it for us and write this whole big summary. But really the important things to send are a von Willebrand factor antigen, that is a quantitative measure of just how much of this von Willebrand protein is in circulation. It's in our lab expressed as a percent of normal. It may also be expressed in international units, which incidentally is usually just the same as percent of normal. So 50 to 150 is considered uh, the normal range. We also will send off von Willebrand factor functional testing. This test measures the binding of von Willebrand's to the von Willebrand receptor on platelets, that glycoprotein 1B. At Rouleau, we use the ristocetin cofactor assay. This uses an antibiotic called ristocetin that causes von Willebrand's to unfold and thereby causes platelets to aggregate. It uses a, a sort of standardized formalin-fixed test platelet as its platelet substrate with the patient's plasma as the source of von Willebrand's factor. Other centers may use more automated methods of testing. These are certainly becoming more common across the country and will probably eventually be uh, the standard functional assay. But suffice to say, they do a similar thing where they look at the binding of von Willebrand's factor to GP1B. 
usually in some sort of ELISA or solid state based assay. We also send a factor eight activity. Typically, we'll run these just as a part of the panel. And a lot of that's because factor eight binds to von Willebrand's factor as we talked about. So it's important to know, is there a discordance between von Willebrand's factor activity, antigen levels, and factor eight activity. Lastly, we always send a type and screen. This tends to be useful mostly in interpreting those borderline results where the antigen levels and activity levels might be slightly low. We find that patients with type O blood seem to have a lower normal range for von Willebrand's factor and activity. The testing makes a lot of sense when you think about the mechanism here. So in order to form a clot, you got to have the von Willebrand factor. So let's just test to see if we got it. We either got it, we have really low levels, or we don't got it, right? And, and that's one thing that can happen. And the second thing that you were saying with the ristocetin and all of these things, if we just remember one thing, this is a functional assay looking at GP1B. If you're going to remember one receptor for von Willebrands, remember that GP1B because it's going to come into play when we talk about the different subtypes of von Willebrand disease. But how does the von Willebrand factor work? Is it working right? Maybe we got enough, but it ain't working right. And the other thing to make the clot is you need that factor eight. It's a chaperone for factor eight, right? It's helping factor eight do its thing. Factor eight is important for the clotting cascade. If you don't got factor eight, we're in trouble too. And if you don't got factor eight, your von Willebrand is also going to be lower, right? Because that's it's a chaperone. They're like working together. So this makes a whole lot of sense. And the typo blood having that in general, these, these patients will have lower levels of von Willebrand factor and may not have a bleeding phenotype. But again, like we've talked about before, asking that patient that bleeding assessment tool is the mo their phenotype is so critical and determining how we diagnose and manage these patients. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you, you reviewed all that. I think that was a really nice summary. And this is something that you're going to see uh, in, in your clinic as a hematologist. Uh, von Willebrand's disease is the most common inherited bleeding disorder and has an estimated prevalence of one in a thousand people. If you look at the overall population, not necessarily symptomatic people, but probably closer to 1% have levels below that normal range that we talked about. Just a, a little pet peeve of mine, nomenclature for this disease is actually with Arabic numerals, not Roman numerals. So it should not be, you know, when we're talking about type two, it shouldn't be type II, it's type number two. But in any event, when it comes to the different subtypes, we know that the thing that's kind of confusing about von Willebrand's disease, there's all these different subtypes. And just remember that type one and type three are quantitative disorders where there's not enough of the, uh, of the von Willebrand protein around. The type two, Subtypes are qualitative disorders. We're going to talk about those in the next episode, but types one and three are quantitative, type two, qualitative. So let's get back to our case. We sent a type and screen, von Willebrand factor antigen, because you got to have some of that to work, the ristocetin cofactor activity to make sure that there's no qualitative issue, and factor eight levels, because you need the factor eight for von Willebrand to work, right? Factor eight and von Willebrand, they, it's that chaperone. They work together. They're carried by each other. And they came back as follows. Von Willebrand factor antigen was 46%. Remember, the normal is 50 to 150, so this was very slightly low. Ristocetin cofactor activity, 58%, which is normal. Factor 8 activity was 77%, which is also normal. And the type and screen showed O positive. How should we go about interpreting this panel? So if I were counseling this patient, I would first just confirm that the patient didn't have any recent illness or injury that could be falsely elevating her numbers over baseline. Remember, factor eight and von Willebrand's are acute phase reactants. And I would tell her that in light of her reassuring bleeding history, her borderline 
antigen level of 46%, just a little bit below the lower limit of normal, and her O-positive blood type, I would say that she does not have von Willebrand's disease, truly. Rather, she has a, a low normal level of the factor, likely related to her blood type. And, uh, you know, fortunately for this patient, she did in fact go to surgery, didn't need any intervention, and has had tremendous relief of her sciatic nerve pain. Let's change things up a little. Let's, let's say that the patient has been referred for workup in advance of a dental extraction instead of spine surgery, and that she did have issues with bleeding after her hip replacement surgery, and actually had to go back to the OR for additional surgical hemostasis. Uh, that would push her bleeding assessment tool score, her BAT score, up to six, which would be more suggestive of a clinically significant bleeding disorder. You sent off the testing, and the results are the same, but this time the patient has type A blood instead of type O. So what, what do you guys want to do next? Well, Dan, I'm going to take the same approach that you did. So, you know, I, I think number one, you already gave us the, the bad score of six. And as you guys alluded to, you know, a score is one thing, but you have to put it in the appropriate clinical context. And in this case, she has elements of her history that also suggest that she may have an issue with, with bleeding. In fact, she had to go back to the OR. And if you guys think about this logically, how often do patients go back to the OR after they come out of surgery, right? It's a rarity, suggesting that perhaps there's something wrong with her ability to stop the bleeding. So in this case, just to reiterate what the testing would be, let's say it was the same scenario, right? So she had a von Willebrand's factor antigen of 46, a resistant cofactor of 58%, and a factor eight of 77%. So same scenario, or rather same labs as last time, but this time she's type A. So knowing that she's type A, her von Willebrand's factor antigen is actually considered low, and that would suggest that perhaps she may in fact have von Willebrand's. But as we've said in multiple episodes, especially all of these episodes related to any of the hematologic consult series, it's always a good idea that if something is abnormal that you repeat te that testing. And that goes back to what Vivek said before, where these levels can be transiently abnormal in, in different situations. Usually they're going to be more elevated in times of stress. And so it's always a good idea to check because you really want to know what are her true what are her true levels. So Dan, did you guys repeat the lab work for this patient? We did. So this is what we got back. Her von Willebrand factor antigen was 36%, so lower than it was before. Her risk seat and cofactor activity was 42%, and factor eight level was 62%. So I'd say at this point, we have enough to say that we can confirm this patient has a diagnosis of type 1 von Willebrand's disease. Do you guys want to tell me a little bit more about these, uh, these quantitative disorders? Yeah, definitely. So this is a perfect case where we had the same panel in two different situations. Situation number one, there was no clinical phenotype of bleeding, and we had type O blood, two things that made us not as concerned for true von Willebrand's disease. The second scenario that we just presented there was a clinical phenotype of bleeding. We had the same panel where it wasn't quite extremely low, but it was still low. And we said, hey, maybe this was just transiently elevated. Let's repeat this. Let's let's get a good baseline. And it showed us the true fact that there was a quantitative issue in this case. So let's talk a little bit more about these quantitative disorders. I ain't got the von Willebrand factor. For type 1 von Willebrand disease, this is the most common type. About 75% of von Willebrand disease diagnosis are type 1. It's an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern. I think about this because it's the dominant form of von Willebrand disease, the most common, so it's autosomal dominant. The levels typically range between 10 and 50%, and overwhelmingly, a majority are related to decreased von Willebrand factor production. 
However, there is a newly recognized type C, C for clearance, where the factor is merely cleared out more rapidly than normal. But really think about type 1, I'm not making enough. We also have type 3. Type 3 is uncommon and it's autosomal recessive. Again, uncommon, so I think of recessive. This is where you have absent or nearly absent von Willebrand factor, which is less than 10%. And this is clinically similar to hemophilia A, given that the factor 8 chaperone function is so important to extending the factor's half-life, patients have profoundly low factor 8 levels as well because they don't have this von Willebrand factor that interacts with it, allowing the factor 8 to do its job. Now that we've talked about the basics, can one of you tell me a little bit about the whole desmopressin challenge business? Because I, I always see this, and I always see we can give DDAVP. Can you, can you talk to me about that? Sure. So this is a really important follow-up testing for patients who have been diagnosed with type 1 von Willebrand's disease. We don't really do this for type 3 because we know that they just don't have the capacity to produce von Willebrand factor in sufficient quantities to respond. But this testing looks at whether or not we can sufficiently augment their levels of von Willebrand factor with the drug desmopressin. And if you remember from our hemophilia episode, this drug increases the release of stored von Willebrand factor factor VIII complexes from the endothelium. And so if we do see that the patient has a good response, we could reasonably use this for treatment of minor bleeding episodes or before minor surgical procedures. And beyond just treatment implications, we can also use this to help figure out if a patient has that clearance type, the type 1C von Willebrand disease. So the test is done by measuring a level and then giving a patient a dose of desmopressin, then measuring that level again one hour and four hours after. If we see that the patient's von Willebrand factor increases from baseline two times or more, so a twofold or greater increase from baseline, and remains elevated over 50%, like the absolute number is over 50% at four hours, then we consider that a successful challenge. We say that, okay, this patient is a responder to DDAVP. And you can use that drug, DDAVP, desmopressin, in combination with antifibrinolytic agents like tranexamic acid or aminocoproic acid for the treatment of minor bleeds and minor procedures. If we don't see that level reaching that twofold increase, then you can't really rely on that strategy. And if the level reaches twofold or greater at one hour, but falls by more than 30% from the peak, that does raise your suspicion for this type C. And you also shouldn't feel confident using DDAVP to help with hemostasis. Now, our patient actually has levels high enough that she can be presumed to have DDAVP responsiveness. Any patient with a baseline von Willebrand factor level over 30%, typically we don't even bother with the DDAVP trial. We say, okay, you're close enough to normal that we're fairly confident you're going to respond. And that's sort of how we, we manage this. So in her case, we did recommend IV DDAVP before her dental extraction, and she tolerated the procedure great. No significant bleeding and is now tooth-free. It's incredible that we can look at these patients, have serial testing, and really cinch our diagnosis. And then based on that panel, based on that testing, we can say, we don't even need this DDAVP challenge. We're confident that you're making enough of this von Willebrand factor that we can just give you the DDAVP if it's greater than 30%. Rona, can you take us home here and, and do a quick recap of all this before we close out today? Yeah, absolutely. Guys, I thought that was a, a great case to kind of really hit home the the discussion about, about quantitative von Willebrand's disorders. So listeners, a few important takeaways from today. 
Remember that von Willebrand's disease is the most common bleeding disorder, and type 1, or a mild deficiency, is the most common type. Von Willebrand's factor is important for starting that clotting cascade, and that's going to be in those areas with high shear stress or high blood flow, and it also acts as a chaperone for factor 8. Type 1 von Willebrand's is a mild deficiency, and remember, the range of 10 to 50, and type 3 is severe deficiency, which is less than 10. And type 2, which we'll talk about next time, is a qualitative defect in von Willebrand's factor. And remember that patients with type O blood have a lower normal range for von Willebrand's factor levels compared to other blood types, and so you always want to assess someone's type and screen when you are screening them for von Willebrand's disease. And remember that diagnosis of type 1 von Willebrand's disease requires both abnormal levels and bleeding symptoms. So guys, the number is not enough alone. You have to put everything in the appropriate clinical context. If somebody does meet all of those criteria, they have the symptoms, they have a history, and they have the objective data to support a history of von Willebrand's disease, then the next thing that you're going to be doing is wanting to do a DDAVP challenge. And remember that DDAVP is a reasonable treatment option for patients with minor bleeding or minor procedures, but in order to ensure that it works, you need to do a DDAVP trial. It seems pretty intuitive. And then the only time that you don't necessarily have to do that, though, is if their baseline von Willebrand's factor antigen levels are above 30%, in which case you're going to expect that they're going to meet that necessary threshold to maintain hemostasis. That was perfect, Ronak. And I think that we left our listeners with a lot to digest right now. So today we talked about I ain't got enough. Next time we'll talk about it ain't working right. So I think that wraps up a good episode. Everybody drink rosé, and we'll see you all next time. I'll see you later. See you later, guys. Peace.